From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Welcome back to Political Theater. Uh, We're going to be discussing the new documentary, Bleeding Edge, today. My colleague, Rebecca Adams, who is the CQ health editor, uh, will be talking with Kirby Dick, the film's director, and Amy Ziering, the producer for the film. Kirby, Amy, Rebecca, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, I I should also mention just off off the top that... uh, Kirby Dick and I, as far as we know, are not, we are not related, with, even though we were both born in Arizona. But again, thank you for, for dropping by. Uh, first thing I, I have noticed uh, is just that the, you know, things are changing so much in filmmaking in general and, and in Hollywood. And I mean, if Hollywood is more of a general term as opposed to a geographic place. I wonder, is having a platform like Netflix uh, or, or Amazon Prime or any of the streaming services, is that, has that changed the way that you've approached your, your craft as a documentary filmmaker? Because it's, I mean, obviously you still want to get butts in the seats in the theaters, but you have just this wider platform, it seems, with a, with a place like Netflix. Well, I don't think it's changed the way that we make films, but I think it's really a perfect platform for this film. Um, this is, a, you know, uh, millions of people, uh, tens of millions of people, uh, maybe even hundreds of millions of people eventually will have uh, either have medical devices implanted or will have a relative, certainly, that has medical devices implanted. And so to have this film on Netflix available to that wide audience, I think is really great. And, and we really anticipate what's going to happen with this film. There's al- already been a, you know, a lot of attention to it. But I think when people realize they can go to Netflix, watch it, and, uh, and learn about medical devices, and, and learn probably in many cases about their relatives or themselves and the problems they've been having with medical devices, I think it's going to really resonate. Yeah, we're grateful that it has not only an incredible domestic audience, but a large global audience, because um, the film has information that you simply cannot get anywhere else. So, you know, this is original reporting. Um, This is an industry that's been covered up for decades. I mean, not only covered up due to sort of lack of transparency in the ways in which they've ensured that information isn't widely disseminated about their products, but also covered up in just sort of a way in which because of bandwidth, there hasn't been a lot of media attention on them. So for all those reasons, it's unbelievable to finally have a piece that comes out and really sort of lays out issues that you need to know if you're having these devices implanted in you. I I, I was shocked. Kirby and I have no one-degree relationship to this issue. Knock wood. We don't have any devices in us yet. Um, We don't have relatives that have been afflicted. But, you know, we just started – we heard about these – heard about this um, issue, started looking into it, and increasingly found that it was a horrific story that needed to be told, and no one was telling it. Now, actually, yeah, I wanted to turn it over to Rebecca on this because we actually, from from our perspective, just on a – on a, on a policy level, you know, Congress is actually considering legislation about medical devices uh, and, and, and sort of an oldie but goodie uh, in, in repealing the medical device tax that was a part of the Affordable Care Act. And so we, you know, Rebecca and I are kind of curious about that. I'm going to hand it over to you on this one, Rebecca. I wanted to hear a little bit more. Tell me more about what you expect to accomplish from the film, because even though Congress comes back every five years and takes another look at device policies through the User Fee Act, it doesn't seem as if there's going to be anything that would move the needle on this. And so I'm wondering, what do you hope to accomplish? Uh, because it's on Netflix, I mean, I think it'll be a sort of a longer game. Um, I mean, first and foremost, just informing the public. 
uh, also informing doctors. I mean, what, what shocked us is that most doctors do not know how medical devices are regulated. And what they do, they don't know that most uh, most higher risk medical devices do not require human clinical testing. Even doctors that are putting the devices in don't know this. So this is it's really important to get this out to doctors. And I think also policymakers are unaware of this. I mean, we've when we made the Invisible War about rape in the military, there was a, at the same time there was very little knowledge of the problems of rape in the military. And uh, after Senator Gillibrand saw the film and other uh, members of Congress, that changed. And as a result, 35 reforms were passed through Congress. And th this was all as a result of the film. So and that took a, a, a couple of years to build. So we, we hope that the same thing will happen here. Are there particular things that you would be interested in seeing Congress do? For example, Congress, the federal government provides funding for medical education, for residency training. Do you think that there should be some education for doctors as oh, part of that? Absolutely. I mean, again, what shocked us is that it appears that most medical schools do not teach doctors or prospective doctors how devices are regulated. I mean, they don't know. So, yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely important. I mean, the other thing is, is to have... Uh, as part of, if, particularly if it's a higher risk uh, implant that's going into somebody's body, to have require human clinical testing. Right now, the vast majority don't. So, I mean, those are two things that could be done right off the bat. There's a, there's a moment where somebody just says that, you know, just sort of has this proclamation that the medical device industry and its, and its lobbying alleys and so forth are the most powerful in Washington. And just from a, you know, from a financial perspective, I mean, pharma. Uh, is is sort of dwarfed, you know, or they dwarf almost not just other medical, you know, advocacy or trade associations, but almost everybody. Is what that person was saying not so much that the there's this much lobbying money going in, but that there are just so fewer guardrails? Because you, you, as you said, with pharma, there are all these medical trials, and and like there are, you know, you, you go through years of testing uh, before you can get uh, you know an anti-cholesterol drug on the market or something like that, and it just isn't the same with in like a pacemaker, it seems. Right. No. No, you're exactly right. I think that's absolutely what was being referenced. I also think is that because the public and Congress is unaware of, of really the medical device industry and its regulation in the same way that they are much more aware and the public's much more aware of pharma, I think that actually gives the medical device industry a lot of power because they can operate behind the scenes and no one understands what they're doing. Yeah, and just to say it, it's the lack of regulation. It's mm -hmm. not its regulation that the public's unaware of. It's the incredible lack of regulation. I mean, we heard over and over again people describing this industry as the Wild West. If you watch our film, things we saw, I mean, seemed medievally barbaric. I mean, the kinds of things they'll just put in a body without proper testing, you know, without the basics is, I was shocked, you know, and doctors are shocked. I mean, that's exactly what Kirby said. It's not that doctors assume there's as rigorous a, regulational, a regulatory process as there is for pharmaceuticals. I did as a consumer, you know, and that honestly is not the case. One of the things that I was kind of interested in is the choices that you made and what to put in the film and what to leave out. One thing that I thought would have bolstered your case was that 2011 National Academies of Sciences report that came out and said, look, this is completely unregulated. The, the process that we're talking about, known as the 510K process, in which it's sort of a shortcut process and, and they don't have to use human testing, that is now the way that most devices are, are cleared. 
in your film, you pointed out that 98% of the devices are now cleared that way. And the report was, was very striking because they said that we should just scrap the 510K process. We should get rid of it. And for a couple of different reasons, including political considerations and including the fact that the report didn't really tell anybody where to go from here, that report was just, it, it, was, it did not have an impact at all, even though there, it was a moment in time when we were on the third round of the user fee reauthorizations. This was an opportunity when Congress had to act on device legislation within the next year. So there was legislation moving through Congress, and advocates would say that was a really big missed opportunity. And so I just, I, I wonder, you know, that, that seemed like a pivotal moment, and maybe it's a little wonky for people outside think, of Washington. Well, yeah, no, no, I mean, it's, I mean, you make a, a really good point. I mean, I think what we do in our film is we show kind of graphically with animation the absurdity mm -hmm. of the of, of the uh, of the regulatory process and and just make it very clear that there isn't regulation for most you know higher risk medical devices that was enough for audiences they go crazy they they just like they stop so we had so much to cover that to get to get that in and establish what that um, what that agency was, I mean, what, what that organization was, and, and it just, we didn't really have the time to do it. Mm -hmm. But but absolutely, you know, from the, from the sort of wonkier side, that it, we the country should have responded right at that point. That was the opportunity. Oh, go ahead, Amy. I mean, it is a, a very complex issue in some regards, but, so, but and to not simplify, but to really um, explain is what we really want people to know is that newer is not better necessarily. Um, and that often with these devices, a product that worked really great in the 70s, to increase your profit margins, you have to come out with something more new and innovative and then sell that and market it. And it's I found that it's really this crazy marketing game in the device industry that isn't about patient health, it's about profits. I mean, and, that, and, and, and that's absolutely true, but yet our uh, intuition and our um, you know, the way our, our society works is to always think, oh, the newest is better, the latest, the most innovative. No, it's just sort of a marketing gambit to try and sell you a different product that actually often isn't, is not only not better, but could really be worse and isn't tested like the things in the 70s were. One of the things that it was, that struck me about, I mean, just from on a personal level, on the one-to-one on the -one level, as, as you referenced earlier, was that my father, you know, in, in 2007, he had a, or 2008, he had a pacemaker inserted after a heart attack. And uh, and it was, you know, I think it was Boston Scientific or something like that. And it was, you know, like the, it must have been one of the last generations of kind of old school. It has a battery. And when it detects an arrhythmia, it gives a little shock or, it, you know, does a, you know, sort of thing. And he would go into his cardiologist and they would plug it in and he'd get a little readout and so forth. A couple of years back, you know, they said, well, we don't know if anything's wrong with that, but we're going to replace it with this new one, this new model. And it was, you know, it was like when I went to buy a refrigerator a couple of years ago, it's like, well, it has a Wi-Fi signal and it, you know, receives all this. And it's like, well, uh, who cares? Like my, my dad at the time lived in the middle of nowhere. I mean, like what a wireless signal wouldn't help him with his, with his pacemaker. And uh, there were all kinds of problems with it. And I wondered, like, who is making these decisions about this? And it, it, it struck me, and I'm just one. One person. I mean, as you said, hundreds of millions of people have medical, some sort of medical device implanted in them. And what's sad is, without this information, you're in a, when you're ill, you're in a vulnerable place. 
and you just want to trust, and you don't even have the ways, you know, and you're nervous. So it, it, it affects your emo ability to make rational decisions. Like, you were one removed. But your dad might have been nervous and said, oh, okay, like, I'll take the new device. And, yeah, he was a 76-year-old right. guy with who had been in congestive heart failure for right. three decades. <laughs> no, it, 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 it exploits our vulnerabilities, you know, right. and um, which includes our ability to make the most wise decisions. And it also, you know, we tend to just trust the these – trust these industries to a degree we really shouldn't anymore. And as do the doctors trust them, too. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, our film is really, we were very careful not to make the film anti-doctor. I mean, the doctors are often unaware that, the, as I said, that these haven't been tested. And so they're put in a position they shouldn't be in to begin with. Doctors uh, over and over again have watched the film and come to us and said, thank you, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not at all an indictment of them. I mean, they're as susceptible to these ignorances as the rest of our population, unfortunately. There is part of the film, though, where you talk about the Da Vinci robot, and a lot of the problems that you're talking about are not necessarily malfunction of a device, but it's poor training of doctors. And so I, I wondered, I mean, it brought to mind another National Academy of Sciences report in the late 90s that said that as many people die of medical errors as are killed in a plane crash every day. That, that it would be the, the equivalent of somebody of a plane crash going down every day is the number of people who die in because of medical errors. Something like 98,000 people a year die from medical errors. So it was really interesting to me that you highlighted that, which wasn't related just exclusively to devices, but also involved doctors and the need to train doctors more. There could and should be a whole film made on the Da Vinci robot. I mean, we only could take a small segment of it for some, for a lots of you know, reasons about just the real estate and the time frame you have in a film. But I encourage someone to really, really go after it in depth. And the one area we decided to focus on, and Kirby can talk about it for strategic reasons, was training. And the backstory to that is it's this, the thing also that I, I want the public to know is that these Da Vinci robots... Um, what they did there was they did this incredible marketing campaign where they made hospitals feel like they had to have the newest and the latest. And then once they sort of bought the robot, they didn't realize that they were on the hook for these incredibly large bills. And so then they were incentivized to really quickly have these doctors book these surgeries, which meant that they didn't necessarily have all the training they needed to to perform them. And so then we focused on that training process. It's like doctors were doing these really complicated surgeries using these really complicated machines under trained simply because there was now pressure to sort of, you know, um, start selling these kind of surgeries to patients as the newest and the greatest. And honestly, um, they're not for a whole multitude of reasons. I mean, so uh, if you're being scheduled and they want to use a robot, just see our film first and then ask a lot of, <laughs> ask a lot of questions, seriously. Some of the most striking images in the film come when people, when women are describing parts of their body falling out because of yeah. These botched surgeries. No, ab absolutely. And, uh, you know, as to, to pick up on what Amy said, I mean, Intuitive Surgical rolled out a massive marketing campaign and led doctors to believe that they were trained in cases where, in some cases, where the training was little as, as a couple of days and a couple of proctored surgeries. They thought they were ready. And, um, and so, uh, you know, as, as Amy said, I think there's a real investigation that needs to be done into Intuitive Surgical and how it became this you know, tens of, you know, a company worth tens of billions of dollars basically uh, marketing things uh, to doctors and having doctors use those when they weren't ready to use them. 
Well, and also, as a doctor pointed out to me, what's really scary about the Da Vinci is if you're a young doctor now that's just trained on these robots and say, maybe you get really good. Maybe you do the 300 journeys and you can really. What happens if something goes wrong and you don't know how to go in with your own hands? What if the power goes down and the robot malfunctions? You have no idea how a body works anymore. You've never been trained. You don't have those 300 hours of experience of going in with a, a, a scalpel. But um, that's and that's, you know, kind of that was like a aha moment for me. And another I want to say another doctor described it as a device in search of patients as opposed to patients in search of a device. I'm not good at reciting studies, but often we would find in, that it was it, there isn't necessarily any improvement by using the robot like you could do it old school just fine. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more profit in using a robot yeah, and, and a lot more cost to patients in hospitals. One thing, I mean, we've got a couple of, you know, sort of big ticket items in the news that are, are specifically about medical devices on, on, the, on the level, you know, public policy that we're covering, you know, at, at CQ and Roll Call. We have the, uh, you know, medical device tax, what to do with it. It's, it's a perennial issue. But also we have Congress, you know, involved, in, you know, every five years in terms of, of reauthorizations. But there's also the thing that more people probably know about, which is the sure, like, you know, sort of news and how, you know, this thing is being pulled now and, and people are talking about it. I mean, like, what went through your mind when you started seeing these headlines, Kirby and Amy, about, about Assure? We were really happy to see this because, you know, we'd been reporting on these, you know, tens of thousands of women who'd been harmed um, by this, uh, you know, implantable contraceptive device that had just caused all kinds of, of harms. And, um, and I think it's it's a testament to the power of these women. I mean, what we what we do in our film is we cover these women who got together through social media. They now have a group of thirty six thousand, and they went up against the FDA and they went up against Bayer again and again and again. And we we follow that fight, and it's actually very thrilling. Bayer decided to finally, after all these years, to pull Esher from the market and and. You know, I, we don't think the timing has just happened this way. We think they did it because they knew that, that this film would really make them look bad, and they wanted to get out of you know they wanted to get out of that situation. Yeah, it's clearly not a coincidence. The film premiered in April at the Tribeca Film Festival to you know, you know incredible audience response, overwhelmingly great critical response. There's been a lot of uh, private screenings of the film. There's been a lot of talk about it and. Uh, they knew that it was coming up shortly to be streamed live globally. And I think that, you know, the combination of the incredible advocacy work of these women coupled with the power and force of this film, which really exposes sort of the egregious horror. I mean, this is a device that wasn't adequately tested, that Bear hid uh, tens of, oh, well, or Bear are, are the concept, or the, you know, the company it bought hid tens of thousands of adverse events from the FDA. The FDA has been very slow in responding to this. I mean, th this should have been done a long time ago. Um, I mean, we're all glad it was done. I mean, this, you know, we're very happy to see that the film is having this kind of impact. Have you talked to the women since then? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, they are ecstatic. I mean, this is, you know, these women are, are incredible. They're a, a, a model for future patient safety groups. This is this is what what can happen when women get and men and patients who are harmed get together because right now what's there's 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 
probably millions of people who've been harmed by medical devices, but they all, oftentimes they think they're only one, they're so sick they can't do anything. Social media has changed that. Even if people are sick, they can get together, they can become a force. And that constituency, we hope, can eventually move Congress to put in a, you know, a better regulatory process. Congress does not seem likely to move very quickly. I mean, they've got 273 co-sponsors, including Democrats in the House, for this medical device repeal. I guess that speaks to the influence of the industry, even though, going back to our earlier discussion, I think uh, the drug industry obviously has a lot more influence in Congress, I think. I mean, we just did our story on lobbying disclosure and talked about how the drug industry spent $10 million in the last six months, and Abamed, the medical device trade group, only spent $1 million. But it's interesting that there is a level of bipartisanship in support of this industry in Congress right now. Because I don't think, I don't think Congress is aware of the, the extensive problems with medical devices. I, 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 would, I would be willing to say that many, if not most, members of Congress aren't even aware that uh, the vast majority of higher-risk devices do not require human clinical testing. There's a, there's a good probability that many of those members of Congress have hips that have cobalt in, which we focus on our film, that are actually having serious side effects from that that don't know. When they see this film or hear about it, maybe they'll change the way they look at this issue and change the way they vote on some of these issues. Well, Kirby, Amy, thank you so much for, for talking about your new film. Rebecca, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for much. having us. And everybody watch Bleeding Edge. It honestly is a film that you can't afford not to watch. Your life depends on it. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and on NPR One. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, you can visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. Thanks for listening.